Hello, welcome to A Disciple's Tidbit, a small seed of information to help grow your faith. My name is Craig, and I want to invite you to sit back and enjoy this mini-episode. Hello, and welcome to this week's A Disciple's Tidbit. So I'm going to grab the bulls by the horns, so to speak, and I'm going to tackle a very controversial topic in our day, and that is going to be the subject of abortion. And what I specifically want to address is many who are pro-choice, meaning that they're in favor of abortion being legal and available for all who want to have it at any point. Uh, They say it's funny how many pro-lifers are so against abortion, but they're very pro-death penalty, and they think it's a contradiction. And I'm going to dispel that notion today and tell you why, yes, I I would identify myself as pro-life as well. I'm a Christian, and I'm going to then outline today why many Christians, most Christians, well, many Christians, I should say, are very pro-life. And I'm going to give you scriptural reasons as to why, and I'm going to give you a scriptural reason why the death penalty is biblical. And I know that sounds weird, but it is. And I'm going to go into that here in just a minute. But we're going to start with the verses that would favor a pro-life position if you believe that there is a God, and if you are especially a Christian who believes in Jesus Christ, you believe that life is human life, uh, specifically, is sacred. I think, you know, the very first one we could go to is Genesis chapter 1, where um, mankind in verse 26 and 27 is made in the image of God. So to the Christian or to the theist, that is why human beings are different from every other animal that walks in the earth. You could theoretically, if you're looking at it from a scientific point of view, say that human beings are just mammals. We're a higher higher evolved mammal, but we're mammals nonetheless. And so they look at humanity as kind of more animalistic in nature, but they do see, I personally think it's because the law of God is written on, on their hearts, but they do see the intrinsic value that human beings have because they say, you know, obviously we can reason, we can deduce, we can create art and all this and that. So it's a little bit more than just simply procreating, eating, and then dying, right? And living like the animals do in that sense. But we'll start our very first scriptural verse in Psalm 139, starting in verse 13. It says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful of your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were in your book were written, every one of them, in the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So it has this idea and thought that God is the one who knits us together into the in, in our mother's womb. But even more profound than that, that we are in the mind of God, realistically, even before we come to be. That's kind of mind-blowing. And it's also echoed in Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah was a prophet in ancient Israel right about the time of the Babylonian captivity for ancient Israel because they had violated the law of God of the sabbatical year for the land, and they had done so for so long, 70 years were decreed that they were to be in exile in the nation of Babylon. And it was only for the southern kingdom, because even more is a history lesson for ancient Israel, the 12 tribes comprised the ancient kingdom of Israel, whereby 10 tribes had defected and gone to the north and were ultimately judged 
for violating the word of the Lord and violating the law of God and were carried into captivity forever by the uh, kingdom of Assyria. And then the nation of Judah and Benjamin to the south, God said for the sake of his name, they would be carried in exile, but allowed to return to the land for the sake of his name, given that God had given many promises to the Jewish people and that a kingdom would eventually arise from the Jewish people in fulfillment of many scriptural verses. But the highlighted one that I want to say here is Ezekiel chapter 37, where God says, my servant David will be king over them. And clearly Jesus uh, said in the gospels, who do they say that the son of David is? Or who is the son of David? Well, that's the Messiah. I am he, basically, is what Jesus was claiming. So all that context to give you that basically Jeremiah is that prophet that was arising uh, right before the Babylonian exile of the kingdom of Judah. And God said to him, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So it's not just clearly, obviously, he he actually gave a, a prophecy about the new covenant that would come about in chapter 31 of this very book in uh, verses 31 through 34. And he specifically calls it a new covenant. And it is admittedly the only prophecy of the new covenant that specifically says new covenant. But in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, the end of Ezekiel 39, uh, Daniel chapter 9, and then obviously what Jesus would accomplish in Isaiah 53 is all highlighted as what actually takes place under the new covenant, right? So it's this idea, I digressed a little bit with that, but it's this idea that God knew people and created people and loved them even before they were born, right? So we'll give you a New Testament example as well. In uh, Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 3, it said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here's the relevant portion of verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he had blessed us in the beloved. So obviously Paul goes on and talks about, you know, how God just remarkably loved us. But the key thing here for this tidbit is that before the foundation of the world, he chose us in him. So we have three pieces of scripture here that talk about how God put us together in the womb. We're made in the image of God. I guess you could talk about four pieces of scripture here because I'm also remarked on the book of Genesis that God created us in his image. He knits us together into the womb. And even before we're born, he knows us. He has already formed us in his mind, so to speak, right? So this is why theists who are, you know, say people who are uh, uh, Jewish people who are uh, of the faith of Judaism, right? Who believe more so in an old covenant style worship of God Almighty, this is why a lot of them are, are pro-life, are pro rather. Some of them are pro-choice, but I think it goes against what the scriptures teach, as I've just illustrated, right? So that's why so many Christians and theists are pro-life. Well, what about the death penalty? A lot of people who are pro-life are also pro-death penalty, and nobody can figure out why who are not of the faith of either Judaism or Christianity. Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of insight into that right now. So in the book of Genesis, after the flood occurred, uh, I'm just going to start in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 9. And it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
the fear of you and the and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with the with its life, that is, its blood, and for your life blood, here's the big kicker. I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it. And for man, for, oh, I'm sorry, and for your, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it. And for man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. In verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So that right there gives what many Christians theologians what Christian theologians call the institution of government or the um, the dispensation of government. Basically that um, you are now going to be if you decide to murder somebody who is made in the image of God, God is going to utilize his fellow man to then take his own life, right? So we can then fast forward to um, the book of Romans in the New Testament, verse thir- or, I'm sorry, chapter 13, in verse 1, it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, but there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So this builds on the idea in Genesis chapter 9 that basically that men are going to govern over other men or humans are going to ju- um, govern over other humans. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have near, no, I'm sorry, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But even if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So it's this idea that basically God has created the institution of government whereby humans govern over other humans. And especially whenever they decide to take a human life, God has granted humans to be able to adjudicate and take the life of that same person who then took the life of somebody made in the image of God who committed the sin of murder. So that's why I hopefully give you a good explanation or at least understanding you may agree with it, you may not, but why... Christians have a scriptural foundation for being pro-life as far as babies in the womb and pro-death penalty for then individuals who willfully take another human being's life, right? So I always like to end these podcasts with an invitation, and I want to invite you, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, and I know that if you're not a Christian, those probably sound trivial and maybe even abhorrent to you, I want you to give it a chance and listen to the next segment coming up. Before we get to the next segment, I just want to reiterate really fast the difference between the two. Number one, I'm talking about when I'm talking about an unborn baby in the womb, I'm talking about an innocent life that has yet to do anything good or evil that is knit together into the mother's womb that is known in the mind of God beforehand versus we're talking about a born individual oftentimes somebody who has a good conscious thought knows what they're doing and then makes the conscious choice to take another human life criminally. 
unlawfully, somebody who then deprives somebody of life that is already alive, that oftentimes is probably an adult in this case, if not at least a teenager, okay? So we're talking about a vast gulf of a difference here between somebody who is in the womb, has not even had a chance at life yet, and then another individual who has had more than its fair share at life and then decides to take another life. There is a huge gulf of a difference between the two, and I just wanted to clarify that really fast. At this point in the podcast, I want to reach out to you, and if you have never done so, if you have never entered into a saving relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that today. All you need to do is believe. Believe that Jesus was who he said he was. He was God in the flesh. Believe in your heart that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. Confess him as Lord. And the Bible says that you will be saved if you do that. If you truly believe in your heart that Jesus is who he said he was and that he did exactly what he said he would do for you, you will be saved. It is simply that easy. A lot of people say prayer, prayer. And that's great to confess and put your mind and your heart and everything through a process, if you will, to be able to embody what's already taken place in your heart. By simply saying, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe in my heart that you were raised from the dead. And now I confess you as Lord. Please take control of my life, and I want to follow you for the rest of my days. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. That's all you need to do, and your life will change. Your life will change, not necessarily materially, not necessarily in terms of the world, but your life will change as far as your relationship with God, and you can know for certain that you're saved. The Apostle John wrote that when he was pinning 1 John. He says, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you can hope, not that you can wonder, but that you can know. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I want to thank you so much for listening to my podcast today. If you'd like to get in touch with me for any reason, I have the links for the social networks that I am connected on in my bio for this podcast. I'm also available at Gmail at DisciplePOV, that's D-I-S-C-I-P-L-E-P-O-V at gmail.com. If you have anything that you would like to convey to me, such as something you agree with, something you don't, or anything else, or if you did receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, I'd love to hear from you today and to assist you on your new eternal journey.